0: How many of you guys know that today is called Monday Thursday? Have any anybody ever heard that term? Yeah. Um, yeah, I was I was kind of looking it up. Um it was uh kind of like the, the mandate that, that Jesus gave on that Thursday night. For some reason it's in the Latin or however it's called Monday Thursday or something like that. So anyways. That's what the tonight is. Um, What I want to do tonight is kind of pick up where I left off on Sunday morning. If you're here with us, um, it was Palm Sunday. And so we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew uh, tonight. And we are actually going to go from chapter 21 to 26. Um, I'm not going to read it all. I'm just going to pick portions of it and just kind of highlight certain parts of it, but it's just um, just kind of been praying a lot for, for tonight and how, how it's going to be conveyed, because I don't know exactly what I want to linger on and what I don't linger on. I will touch on other portions of the Gospels, but I just want to be able to, to kind of walk us through the triumphal entry and up into the, the upper room and kind of linger there for a time but also take you all the way into the garden tonight. And so what I want to do right now before we actually really get started is is I just want to ask you to just quiet your heart right now and just be able to just be silent Um, and then just ask the Lord, uh, you personally, that the Lord would just minister to you this evening as he takes you through his word, through this This passion week of what Jesus went through to kind of get us to that upper room. And so I just want to just be quiet just for a moment. And uh, you you pray. You pray that the Lord would just minister to your heart. And as you're praying for you, pray for me that the Lord would just lead me and guide me. I truly want the Holy Spirit just to lead me tonight in what I'm going to be sharing. Um, And so we'll have uh, worship at the end. And uh, we'll have communion at the end as well. So let's just quiet our hearts before the Lord. Lead us, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 21. <clears throat> in verses 12 to 17, I read, I read those, those scriptures to you if you were here on Sunday morning. I, I read those por- that portion of scripture to you. It was after the, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and we know from, from Luke that there was a time when Jesus wrote in and he kind of just cried over Jerusalem. He kind of looked over Jerusalem and said, you know, Jerusalem, if you only knew that today was your day. That, that today was the day that I would be writing in. And again, that was such a, an amazing portion that's in Luke because it's a, it's, it, it reminds us or it tells us about the prophecy in Daniel Um, chapter 9 where it talks about uh, the messiah being cut off and that he would come at exactly that time in history and 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 jerusalem or the religious leaders should have known all this and yet they missed it royally and so you know he he comes in he understands that the time clock is going to stop there because from then on he is going to focus on birthing birthing the church and now we would be into the church age and then it's not until the seven-year tribulation that he would get back to dealing with israel once again so there was this time clock that stopped and all of a sudden we are now in the age of grace but it doesn't share that with us in matthew it just says that he came in he 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 comes on in and people were asking who is this and people were just kind of tripping out on on, on all that was happening and the multitudes that is there. And again, you gotta you gotta almost picture yourself going back in time, being in Jerusalem if you've seen pictures, but being back there at that time and and thinking, man, the, the estimated amount of people that were coming in from all over were about two million people. And so people are staying on the outskirts and and then people are just surrounding Jerusalem. So there's so Many people. So when you hear about the multitudes, man, it's the multitudes. There's a lot of people hanging around, and so this procession that happens from Bethany all the way into Jerusalem, this two mile procession or parade that happens, I could imagine is it's just lined with people. I don't know how many deep, but it's just to me. I picture this, and I try to put myself in that place, going, man, can you imagine the the cheering and and the the hosannas that are being uh, just it's just loud and so, and so when we get to verse 12 and, and it talks about how Jesus goes into the temple and begins to drive out the money changers and so he, he makes his way in on a Sunday and again I re- read this portion to you as if it had taken place on that Sunday after he rode in And it is quite possible that that situation, and I shared it like that on Sunday. But the Gospel of Mark tells us that the hour was already late, and he, Jesus, went out to Bethany with the twelve. And so Mark, in his Gospel, he tells us that, that after he comes in, and the triumphal entry has taken place, That after lingering there for a time, whether he went into the temple or not, but it tells us that it was late and he went off to Bethany because that's where he was lodging. That's where he was staying. So Jesus was having this two-mile walk back and forth. So that evening he takes off. Now again, it's quite possible that he did make his way into the temple and he overturned the, the, the money changers. Now it's quite possible in Mark's account that when he came back that next morning... He did it again because these people had not learned their lessons. So it's quite possible that he had done that. Now, it wasn't the first time that Jesus had ever turned over some tables. In, in John chapter 2, at the beginning of his ministry, it says that Jesus made a, cord, uh, uh, a whip out of cords and went into the temple and just kind of started swinging it. Did he hit anybody? I don't know, but you kind of like... Oh, a little meek Jesus kind of making a, a, a some whips and going in there but you see there was this this thing about him that that he was getting riled up now it doesn't say that he did that every time he went to Jerusalem three times a year just so happened in in John chapter 2 and in this instance that Jesus is is pretty upset about what's going on in the temple and so it's quite possible that after the triumphal entry, he went in on that Sunday. And then on Monday, he could have cleansed the temple once again. It's quite possible. But now we get into the Monday. But let me t- tell you a little bit about the, the whole thing about the temple. The temple was a little different than a synagogue. It was way different than a sy- synagogue. A synagogue, there's more synagogues than there is temples. There's only one temple, and that was in Jerusalem. But a synagogue was sometimes where Jesus would would go. And we see the Apostle Paul going. And anywhere there was more than 12 Jews in a city, they were able to build a synagogue or have a synagogue. And so a temple was the dwelling place of God. It was the house of God. And Jesus says, this is my Father's house. The synagogues were not, per se, but the temple was. And so he becomes upset at these people. It says that, that he... He, uh, he becomes indignant over it. It's a righteous anger that he has. Now, the reason for these people coming in and buying and selling was the fact that because people were coming from so many different places, that instead of bringing their sacrifices with them, they oftentimes would just buy them there at the temple. Now, it's quite possible that when people were bringing their sacrifices, the religious leaders ended up saying, oh, there's a flaw, it can't be used. And they take it out to the back and they'd give them another one that was clean. And then that one that they just brought, they end up selling to somebody else. You know, it's quite possible that this is what was going on and this is what was making Jesus upset. That they had all of a sudden maybe started off innocently enough trying to help people buy their sacrifices When it is quite possible that it just had become a racket and people were just going, you know, they're not going to like I've I've inspected my lamb, but they're going to find something wrong with it and they're going to sell me one. And so might as well just go and buy it. And so it had become a business and a crooked one at that. Now, I don't know if they were actually walking in and through the temple doing that, or they were just outside, but I remember years ago when I used to go down to Ecuador, and we'd go to the cathedral that's down in the, in the main centro, the, the square down there, and, and you walk over there in this humongous building, and you have all these people selling their wares right outside. And I, I would always be reminded of this kind of stuff, you know, that they are there peddling their their wares and stuff like that. So they had vendors, and it was almost like these people were out there, you know, get your, get your sacrifices here, get your sacrifices. Um, and so mild-mannered Jesus becomes indignant. He, he has this righteous an- anger that's welling up in, in him because the people were getting ripped off. And and so these people were were selling the these doves, and only the poor were the ones that were buying doves because they couldn't afford the the, the lambs and stuff like that. And Proverbs chapter twenty two, verses twenty two and twenty-three says, Do not rob the poor because he is poor, nor oppress the afflicted at the gate, for the Lord will plead their cause and plunder the soul of those who plunder them. And so he he talks about this what was going on there and and when he talks about my house shall not be called or shall be called the house of prayer, uh, but you have made a den of thieves, he is quoting isaiah fifty six seven and jeremiah seven eleven now from verses eighteen to twenty two we have a st- the story of the fig tree, and um, it says that in the morning as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing the fig tree um, on the road that he came to it and found uh, nothing on it but leaves and said, let no fruit grow uh, on you ever again. And immediately the fig tree withered. Now, did it happen right away? One one example tells us that by the next day when they came back that the apostle said, man, check this out, how quickly this thing withered. He just spoke to it yesterday and it's happened today. So however it happened, it withered, and that was not normal. But Jesus spoke to it, and it became like that. Now, he does tell the the disciples in this short story here. He says, assuredly, in verse 21, I say to you, uh, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do um, what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea it will be done and so this was a lesson for his disciples that if they have faith and do not doubt that they too can move mountains but many believe that this portion of scripture is referring to israel the fig tree is symbol of of israel and um, they too were professing to be fruitful but at this time when Jesus has come on the scene, and we're going to see this whole thing play out, we see that in closer examination, the nation of Israel refi- revealed that they were truly, truly fruitless. The religious leaders had taken over, and this this their, their their mindset was not to draw close to God anymore. It was to be seen of men. And their fruit was not their, their, the, the nation was not bearing fruit. And so, by cursing that generation, Jesus was showing his rejection of them and predicting that that no fruit would come from them again. And we know that in a few days, that generation would reject their king who had rode in triumphantly the day before and crucify him. Now, from verse 23 to 27, it says... Now when when he had come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, By what authority do you do these things? Are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. Where was it from? From heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for they count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now this is probably one of my favorite parts in, in, in this whole story. Not because Jesus comes back at them and just kind of shuts them up, but partly because he is sarcastic a little bit here. But what I see here is that Jesus was never or never allowed himself to ma- be manipulated in any way, shape, or form. He never allowed that to happen, even in the questioning of people coming against him. When, when people were asking Jesus' question, the common people, when they had a genuine question, Jesus would answer them, no doubt. He would be so open with them, and he would teach them what they were asking about. But when he had people like this who who were had these motives behind them to trap him or to 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 somehow make him look fool, foolish, he would never allow himself to go there. And so I love the fact that he kind of basically just turns it on them. And these things that they are talking about when they're saying, "Who's giving you these the authority to do?" These things, they were referring to him coming into the temple and driving out and overturning all the tables. They're saying, who gives you this right to come and do this? Now, being a Pharisee or being a scribe, they had every right to ask this kind of question because they oversaw the temple. I can understand that, that they're saying, hey, who do you think you are coming in and doing that? But Jesus knew the motive behind their question. It wasn't because they truly wanted to know what authority. If they truly would have answered them, answered Jesus what they really thought, they probably would have gotten their own answer or their question answered. They say, well, he was from God. (laughs) It's like, then he is the one that has given me this authority. But they feared that they would be wrong because they had an, uh, an issue with John the Baptist as well. They sought to trap him, to trick him. And so he knew the motive behind them and these guys were not serious at all with their question about authority. If these guys again would have just answered correctly, they would have known by what authority Jesus did this and who he was that gave him this authority. But what I like about Jesus again here is that he turns the tables on them. And what I see here is, is a quote from him that we are to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. He wasn't going to let himself be manipulated in any way. So from verses um, 28 of chapter 21 of Matthew to, to chapter 22, verse 14, Matthew gives us three parables here. All having to do with what God had done for the nation of Israel, and what God required from the nation of Israel. He, he talks about the two sons in one parable. He talks about the parable of the landowner, and also the parable of the the marriage feast. Now, I won't go into all of these, but, but the parable of the landowner, the, the middle one from verse 33 to the end of the chapter there, um, this parable of the landowner is kind of uh, explained in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, if you'd like to turn, turn there. Um, and I want to read these seven verses to you, because they do go in line with this parable. It says in Isaiah chapter 7, verses, verse 1, Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding this vineyard. My well-beloved was or has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleaned out or cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built the tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judea, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done to it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedges and it shall be burned and break down its walls and it shall be trampled down and I will lay it waste. It shall not be poured or pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds and they will rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord is the host of the host of, uh, of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the pleasant plants. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. Going back to the parable of, of the landowner, we see that that God talks about how, how there was a certain landowner who had this vineyard and he let these, these vine dressers take care of it. And when he would send people to it, they would beat them and they would, they would often kill them. And finally he said, well, you know what, I'm going to send my son. And these guys said, well, this is the heir, let's kill him and, 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 and just get rid of it and keep the land all for ourselves. The man in the parable that we looked at in Isaiah is God. The vineyard is Israel. The vine dresser is the religious leaders. The servants, they are the prophets and John the Baptist. And the beloved son is Jesus himself. And Jesus is talking to the chief priests and the Pharisees and the scribes in all three of these parables as he's speaking to them. Because they were the ones that had come to question his authority. And because of who they are, they should have known that when he started sharing these parables with them, especially this one of the landowner, it should have reflected back to Isaiah chapter 5. When he begins to start talking about how he would send people and these landowners or, or these, these vine dressers, they ended up being sour grapes and everything that came with that. Mark tells us that the man, God, had done, uh, in in this parable, had done everything to prepare the land for them. He, He is the one that planted this vineyard. He planted them. He didn't leave it up to others to do anything about it. The Lord himself took this active role in planting Israel. He loved Israel so much that he would send them the Messiah. He, he, would, he, he even told them throughout the Old Testament when he would arrive. And the religious leaders had become so religious that, that it wasn't about God anymore. It was about them and their own society and, and, and everything about them. And they were missing out on everything that the Lord had for them. God was the one that protected them. He put safeguards up for them. And if they ever broke something, then, then God had brought the law in there. He had brought judgment. And he had sent people like prophets, priests, and kings to warn them. He had built them a tower, a, a, a tabernacle in the wilderness, and a, and, and a temple uh, in, in, uh, right there at that time that the nation of Israel could come to those places and find forgiveness. And what more could he have done for the nation of Israel? that he had not already done God had prepared it all and here we have Jesus showing up on the scene and this week of this passion week is going to be nothing but testing and trials and he will be killed by the end of the week and God has sent Jesus to them and they're doing exactly what he's telling them in this parable the religious leaders have become so prideful and arrogant That they wanted the vineyard all to themselves. They had a form of godliness, but they truly, truly denied the power of God. And so all of this takes place to chapter 22, verse 14. All of this takes place on Monday. And so from verse 15 on to chapter 25, we get into Tuesday. And this is on Tuesday is when the testing and inspecting of the Passover lamb begins to take place. And this has to do with the Passover lamb. Not just any lamb, this is the Passover lamb. Jesus was put to the test to see if there was any flaws in him, any blemishes at all. And again, because these guys had become so conniving, man, they were doing anything they could possibly do to find just one little fault against this Passover lamb. If they had found any kind of fault, then he could not be the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. But there was no fault found in him. Three three different groups, three different religious groups came at him. Luke focuses on two, but the Gospels of Matthew and Mark tell us that there were three. These religious leaders knew that the Passover lamb had to be inspected. But what they didn't know, what they had no clue about, which they should have, but they didn't, was that they were actually testing and inspecting the Lamb of God. The Passover lamb. The last Passover lamb that God would ever Recognize. after this Passover God would never ever recognize another Passover lamb and these guys are testing him they're inspecting him and they had no clue they came testing him with their pet peeves first you have the Herodians and the Herodians were more of a lawyer type they did have some religious leanings but not much they were pro-Israel or not pro Israel, they're pro Roman Empire. They they didn't mind what was happening with the Romans, and then coming in and taxing the people. So they come in and they begin to ask Jesus about taxes. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar? And again, Jesus knowing that they're coming in to trap him, because if he says, "Well, yes, you should," then the people would say, "Are you kidding me, Jesus? You're for the Romans." And if he says, no, you shouldn't, then they would say, hey, we're going to turn you into the IRS, basically. You know? And, and, and so either way, they got him. And you know the story. Jesus says, well, what, give me a coin. And he says, What's, whose insignia is it? Whose image is it uh, here? And they say, well, well, Caesar's. Well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God." And so it's almost like, Ugh! they couldn't do it, you know? And then the next group that comes after him after them is the Sadducees now the Sadducees were Sadducee because they didn't believe in the resurrection and so because they did not believe in the resurrection they come after him to test them about the resurrection and so their whole thing is like hey master man we know that you're a master, you can talk about these things, blah, blah, blah. There was a brother or there was this woman that married a brother and he died leaving no kids. And so because the brother died, the other brother had to marry her. And then he died and left no kids. And then the other brother had to marry her. And then he died. And at that point I would be going, something's wrong with this woman. It must be her cooking or something that's killing these guys off. But there were seven brothers. <laughs> again, I know it's a hypothetical, but it's like, I'm worried about this woman here. <laughs> but be that as it may, it says, Well, all seven brothers married her, in heaven, whose wife will she be? Again, asking about the resurrection. And I love that Jesus, again, He just kind of goes towards them and, and He says, You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection there is neither Mary. Mary. They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. And so he kind of just disputes that and says, you're trying to fit what you can understand in heaven, and what's in heaven is nothing like what you can understand here. It's way beyond. But he, he says... At, at, towards it, he says concerning the resurrection have you not read uh, have you not read that it was spoken to you by God saying I am the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob God is not the God of the dead but of the living and so he answers their question they're testing him and he comes through with flying colors the fa- the last um group that came after him was uh, the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, they were good at the law. They knew the Old Testament inside, you know, and outside, all the way through. They knew the laws. They understood. And so they test him with the commandments. And they asked him, which is the greatest commandment of of all? And instead of Jesus saying, wow, gosh, let me pick one. He says, here's the greatest. Love God with everything, with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second commandment, it's just as vital as the first one. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so again, he comes through with flying colors. These groups try to trap him to catch him, but they just couldn't. And in my opinion, I, I see that Jesus uses great restraint here. Even though he knows that these people are trying to trap him, he understands the fact that they have to test him. And he comes up clean. No fault whatsoever in him. And then he turns the question on them. And in verse 41, he says, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How how then does David, in the spirit, call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did any did uh, anyone dare question him anymore. Again, once again, Jesus kind of turns it all on them and and they had been asking questions that pertained to their group that that really didn't matter in the whole scheme of things. But what we see with Jesus is that he's not sweating bullets here. He's not. He's not like, oh man, we're done. No, he turns around and says, "Well, let me ask you a doctrinal question that you should know." And he throws this right at him, at them. And I love the fact that Jesus doesn't cower. He doesn't run and hide. He doesn't do any of that. He comes up clean, like the Passover lamb should. But he hits them in a place where they should have known who is Christ, who is the Messiah. Because they shouldn't have missed it, but they were missing it that week, big time. It was common knowledge among the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders and all of Israel that that Messiah was to come. He was to come in that time frame, but he was to come and he would be from the line of David. It was promised to David that God would always have a man on the throne for David. So Messiah would be the son of David But he would also be the son of God. He would be man and God at the same time. And this was something that they, the the, the religious leaders, the scribes, didn't want to acknowledge. And so Jesus brings up and quotes Psalm 110 and asks them for their explanation. How could David's son also be David's Lord? And what he says basically is, In in Psalm 110, the Lord Jehovah, I am that I am, says to my Lord, Adonai, Master. And so David understood when he wrote this, that Messiah was deity. And that he would be the son as well. And so the question is dropped in their laps. How is he then his son? And they should have understood and accepted what David understood back in the day. Now, from Matthew 23, getting into chapter 23 to chapter 12, Jesus begins to speak to the multitudes about the scribes and the Pharisees. And he basically tells them, do what they tell you to do, but don't be like them. These guys had put on so many restrictions on the people. They were, they were adding laws all the time and it was, it was just burdensome. He says, do what they tell you to do, but don't become like them. And then from verse 13 of chapter 23 to the end of the chapter, basically, Jesus speaks directly to the scribes and the Pharisees and he announces seven woes to them for their hypocrisy. And he basically tells them, as he calls them, blind guides, as he calls them, hypocrites, and, and things like that. He says, outside you make yourself look good, but inside you're as dead men's bones. That's what they. That's what he basically gets at them. If you've never read chapter thirteen of of, uh, of chapter twenty three, um, you should read it. It it just because again, Jesus. We always look at him as this mild mannered kind of guy that wouldn't stand up for himself and he actually does he stands up against the religious leaders and tells them who they really are because he was he understood the injustice that they were bringing upon the common people now when you get to chapter 24 chapter 24 deals with prophecy something that would happen in the future Now some of it has already happened and still uh, part of it is still to come. Most of it is still to come. And this is what is called the Olivet Discourse. Jesus and his disciples were now done with all the stuff that had been going on in the temple. And they were on their way out as they're leaving the temple. And his disciples, they looked at him and they looked at at the temple and they... They commented on the beauty of the temple, and some believe that this was one of the most beautiful buildings ever built. And the Jews were very proud of their temple, even though it was Herod's family who had built it. They were really proud of it. And the disciples, I'm sure, thought that as soon as Jesus sets up his kingdom, because they had this this physical kingdom in mind as well, they probably thought as soon as Jesus takes over we're going to be heading up the temple. We're going to be in charge here. And they were probably expecting Jesus to agree with them when when they were commenting on the on the temple and that the next step would be to gain control of this whole thing. But verse 2 when when they said, you know, about the temple, Jesus says in verse 2 and Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And I'm sure this, this is not what they were expecting. How could this beautiful building be demolished? How could it just fall apart like this? Well, in 70 AD, the Romans would come and destroy the whole temple. They would take it apart bit by bit. But that, this is where they ask two questions. When is this going to happen? And what is the sign of your coming? And Jesus answered that to them. And they thought that the destruction of the temple would coincide with his coming at the end of the age. And it's important for us to, to not get caught up in that because they're two separate things. They're two separate things. The the, the scriptures that, that, that coincide with the chapter 24 because it's speaking about his second coming not the rapture of the church are daniel chapter 9 jeremiah 30 verse 7 and uh, revelation chapters 6 to 19 this is what's called the 70th week of daniel the time of jacob's trouble and the great tribulation and so we need to realize even in this chapter chapter 24 that this is a jewish thing we have Jewish men asking their Jewish rabbi things pertaining to Israel and the Jewish temple. This is not about the church. The church is not involved in that. Um, and so, But there's a lot of things that can relate to us at that time. But we as Christians should understand the end times, not to scare people, but because this is what the scriptures talk about. Chapter 25 <laughs> deals with a couple of parables that Jesus shares in light of His second coming. And at the end of the chapter, Jesus shares with them how He will separate the sheep from the goats. Now more than likely, all of this happened uh, from Matthew 22:15 to the end of chapter 25. All of this took place on Tuesday. Now nothing is really recorded. On Wednesday. Of anything really happening on Wednesday. Not in Jerusalem, in that sense. But chapter 26, as you get to chapter 26, Jesus begins to share with his disciples. It says, And it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these things that he said to his disciples, You know that after two days is the the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And so they already are plotting something against Jesus. In verse 6, it says, Now when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster box and very costly fragrant oil. And she poured it on his feet as he sat at the table. And when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, uh, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But Jesus was aware of it, but when he was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done this good work for me, for you have the poor with you always, but me you will not always you will not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body she did it for my burial. Assuredly I say to you, whoever Wherever the gospel is preached, in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. And so we have that once again, that we're memorializing this woman who did this. Now, in verse 14 it says, Then one of the twelve, Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. Now, this possibly could have taken place on Wednesday, but not in Jerusalem. Judas might have gone over there and and started this whole thing. Now, this whole fragrant oil thing, the Gospel of John tells us that it was Judas Iscariot who complained about the waste of the oil. And so it could be that that was the, the straw that broke the camel's back. That that is when he finally realized, you know what, I'm done with these guys, I'm done with this whole thing, and that is when he decided to go betray him. But sometime in that week, that took place, that Judas started setting all this stuff up. And so from verse 17 to to about, well, we, we get to Thursday in and verse 17. And I'll just read through this. Now on the first day of the feast of the unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying to him, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. And I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them. And they prepared the Passover. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them began to say, Lord, is it I? He answered and said, He who di- dips his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it was it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, you have said it. Can you imagine the tension that was going on there? As they sat around, here they go and prepare everything for this this Passover dinner. And as Jesus sits with them, he knows what's going on. He knows that his betrayer is probably sitting right next to him on his right, probably. He, he would be the guest of honor, basically. or Whichever way it was. But he would be sitting right next to him. And he knows exactly what is happening. And he knows that it's Judas that is doing this. And so he basically calls him out and says, the one that dips with me, and then it would be Judas that would end up dipping with him. And in the other Gospels, Jesus says to him, go do what you got to do and do it quickly. What a sad place. That here, this man that has walked with Jesus for three and a half years, been been a part of this ministry for all this time, whatever it was that drove him to this point, that he betrays his Lord and the Savior. And so most believe that this is when he got up and left because he didn't stick around for the communion part. And in verse 26, he says, And as they were eating... Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so now he sets up the communion part. It was different than all the other times that they had had Passover. No, this time he had something different to it. As he breaks the bread, he begins to give it or pass it around, and he says, This is my body. Nothing has happened to it yet, but he's saying, This is my body which is broken for you. Knowing exactly what will be happening in just a few hours, he begins to implement this time with his disciples as an intimate time. This is the time where, where Jesus, in, in, in the Gospel of John, we see him you know, wash their feet. He has already washed their feet. He's sitting down. He's reclining with them. He is teaching them so many things. He is talking to them about the Holy Spirit. He is talking about the power that they will be able to receive. He is talking to them and teaching them what will happen when he's gone, that, that because all of this is going to happen, they will have this new relationship with him. And he says, here's my body. It's being broken for you. And then he takes the cup and he says, this is my blood in the new covenant. And what he was saying is, everything that's happened in the Old Testament, that was the old covenant. From this moment on, something new is happening. All these other prophets, all these other people, man, they desire to be able to have this new covenant. And I'm giving it to you. And you will be able to remember all of this. And it will be different because the Holy Spirit will now come into you after all of this. Man, the old is is passing away. And he's preparing it for them. And he's saying it to them. And he says, but I'm not going to eat of this until we're all together again. And I'm thinking, whoa. That, 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 that time when all the church, everybody comes together again, that's when he's going to rejoice in this. And then in verse 30, it says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to, to uh, stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered but after I have been raised I will go before you to Galilee Peter answered and said to him if even if all are made to stumble because of you I will never be made to stumble Jesus said to him assuredly I say to you that this night before the rooster crows you will betray me three times Peter said to him even if I have to die with you I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and his disciple, and said to his disciples, Sit here a while while I pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. And he began to be sorrowful and greatly displeased or distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the weak, but the flesh is weak. Again the second time he went away and prayed and saying, O oh my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. And he came to his disciples and said to them, "Are you sleeping? Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, rise and let us go. Be going. See, the bet- my betrayer is at hand. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, "Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him!" Immediately, as he went um, up to greet Jesus, greeting, uh, saying, said greeting. Rabbi, and kissed him, and Jesus said to him, "Friend, why do you come?" Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly, one of those who was who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. So Jesus said to him, "Put a, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword." Or do you not think that I cannot pray? now pray to my Father and He will provide me with more than 12 12 legions of angels? How how then could the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? In that hour Jesus said to the multitudes, You have come out as... against a robber with swords and clubs to take me I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and you did not seize me but all this was done that the scripture might be of the prophets might be fulfilled then all the disciples forsook him and fled as we think about this story about this chapter we're going to spend some time in worship And you can come up at your leisure to come and take communion on your own or with your family or with your friends or whoever you're with. But what I'd like to see is for you guys to just linger for a little bit. I know there was a lot of reading that took place. Some of you are like the disciples. Could you not wait with me for one hour while I I read? But I know it's kind of tough when somebody's reading and it's not like excellent reading. But the story is powerful because Jesus, we see this, this passion week. We see that everything that Jesus went through, and it wasn't for nothing, it was for you. It was for you. Everything that he went through was because he loved us so much. He was the Lamb of God who came into this world so that he could be beaten and bruised and killed so that me and you can have salvation. That's powerful. You know, when, when, when after the fact, as they're walking and they're singing hymns, I don't know if it was a somber mood. I don't know exactly how the mood felt. But when Jesus got into the garden and he began to tell them what he was really feeling, I can't imagine the the disciples going, I've never seen Jesus like this, (laughs) you know? But it was going to be a hard moment for him that he would go and pray and say, Lord, if there's any other way that man can be saved, let's do it that way. But not your will. Not my will, but your will be done. And there was no other way that you and I can receive salvation except for Jesus being killed and the way he was killed. And so again, as we... uh, begin to enter into a time of worship. Ponder it. Ponder all that the Lord has been ministering to you. Again, there's probably going to be four or five songs. You don't have to rush up here to get it. But spend some time just you and the Lord. And then when you desire, come up and take some communion with you and your family or your friends or whoever you're with. Or if you want to just escape from everybody and just get into the corner, just do that. But just let it be a sweet time, amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for tonight, Lord God. Thank you for your word, Lord, even though we covered a lot of chapters, Lord. Lord, trying to get just the gist of what happened on Passion Week, Lord. The fact that Jesus knew exactly what would be happening, knowing that he would be tested by the religious leaders who, who truly, Lord God, had made a mockery of the nation of Israel. And Father, I thank you, Lord God, that Jesus was faithful. He was faithful to, to pass the test. I thank you, Lord God, that he even spoke to the people, that they would still be respectful of the religious leaders. I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you for the questions that he asked back to them. Father, I thank you, Lord, God, for the disciples that even though they didn't quite comprehend it all, he never dismissed them. (laughs) He allowed them to stay with him, Lord, even when he knew that one of them would betray him, even when he knew that they would all forsake him, he still loved them. He still went through with it. And so, Lord, let this time that we get to have with you be special. So Lord, please be with my brothers and sisters as they partake. Be with the worship team as they lead us in worship. Just be glorified in all that happens. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Don't forget tomorrow we're showing the, the film The Passion of the Christ. Come and join us. Invite somebody to come and, 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 and see it with us. Amen.